Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. And this morning, we have Mr. Ron Hans with us this morning. You know, he is all about conscious community, the network for developing conscious communities here in the DMV and in Baltimore. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Tell me, what is the network for developing consciousness? Well, the Network for Developing Conscious Community is an emerged national organization focused on the development within communities of color. And what we apply is a humanistic and spiritual perspective to how community development should be engaged from a community perspective. With that said, Vernon, we look at spiritual principles that can guide furthering the connectivity among people and community. Okay. So how long have you been doing this? Uh, this organization has now been emerged for four years now. Okay. So I think I've known you about that long, that amount of time. Well, a little years. longer than that, because we met prior to me starting this organization. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so what are some of the kinds of things that you do in this organization? Well, the kind of things that we try to do is really, first of all, we're, we're, we're about education and using education as a tool to elevate consciousness. And so we partner with uh, other local and national organizations as well as singly ourselves to sponsor forums and platforms where we can drive conversation around outcomes, about issues that are affecting African Americans and other communities of color. So we've done national conferences, we do, we do local symposiums, and we engage in, in really strengthening the ecosystem of community development around communities of color. You just sit around and talk all day long. No, no, we don't sit around and talk all day because, like I said, we're driving outcomes. But it's important to understand that education is a big tool to driving any productive outcomes around decision-making or productivity. So what kind of outcomes are you looking for? Well, first of all, we're looking at outcomes around eliminating and, 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 and decreasing the disparities that are affecting communities of color. There, there are health disparities in our communities that show that our, our zip codes are, are more of a determinant of your life longevity than anything else. We're looking at the educational disparities in our in, in communities of color. We look at the uh, business and unemployment rates, the home ownership rates. We're still around 40% home ownership in communities of color, where nationally the rate's around 64%. We look at the diminishing ability of creating generational wealth in African-American and other communities of color, which is a big predominance of, of an outcome in terms of what we're able to do economically in our communities. So those are, the, those are a lot of things that we, 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 we're certainly working at addressing and creating conversation around. So what's the conversation around? I mean, all of these are extremely important to me, whether it's health, education, unemployment, homeownership. But the one that really gets me is this generational wealth. I mean, that hits me more than anything else. So yes. what are some of the disparities or what happens in our communities that would cause this huge gap in wealth creation? Well, Vernon, I, I tell you something. It goes back over the last 50, 60 years in this country in terms of policies, local policies, that have that affected where we lived and how we access financial resources. It goes back to the 1930s at the start of the federal programs around housing and how there was discriminatory and segregated practices within state local government that prohibited us as a people from acquiring financial resources. Go back to the redlining that has gone on that has created economic walls around our communities where we couldn't access financial resources. 
And of course, you know, the exploitation that went on as a result of that, because of the fact that we couldn't acquire through the normal financial streams with FHAs and, and VA and the securing of mortgages, that others took advantage of that opportunity to exploit us in the real estate market. And where you, as you all know, home ownership is probably the first gateway to creating wealth over time. So if you are buying a home in a, a neighborhood that's been redlined, your value is slow to appreciate and create the equity that you would normally use to send your kids off to school, to start businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in suburban white America, that door was always open, which allowed them to, to create equity in their home ownership opportunities and then use that equity to to move into small business, to send their kids off to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the opportunities that we didn't have as a people uh, for over 60 years in, in this country. Well, Ron, I guess I would say it's not just 60 years. It's probably 400. But well, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 well, you know, I, I, I did want to tap into the years of slavery, but, but coming out of Jim Crow, which we know was very impactful, that took place after after the abolition of slavery in 1965, this whole white-led privileged society took on another plateau to violently disengaging us economically in this country. So you could not get a loan to borrow money in the neighborhood. So you could not buy a home. And therefore, you could only rent. And the people that own those multifamily buildings were normally white, and then they exploited you. I heard you use that word, exploited. Exploited, yes. So you end up paying a larger percentage of your income. So you don't have a huge amount of income in the first place or a huge unemployment rate. And so then that income, a huge, I think FHA or HUD talks about 30% of your income going toward housing. And you may find in the neighborhood that that might be more like 50% of your house, your income going to housing because you're making a lower amount of income and a higher amount of rent. So that's where this exportation piece comes in. Generation and generation, harder to create wealth. You know, one of the speakers that we're having at our symposium, and we'll talk more about that, is, is um, Dr. Burl Satter. Wait, 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 wait. Tell me, what symposium are you talking about? Oh, the symposium I'm talking about is, is the, the Symposium on Racial Equitable Community Development that we're hosting in Baltimore from October the 22nd through the 23rd. Uh, one of our keynote speakers at that symposium is Dr. Burl Satter, who's a researcher at Rutgers University. Dr. Satter's father was a Jewish attorney working in Chicago during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And what her father did for black families was provide them legal advice on acquiring and purchasing real estate, and particularly talking about home ownership. What was going on in Chicago at the time was, like many other cities in America, there was blockbusting, where white realtors, brokers, and loan officers, and the whole, the whole systematic process of scaring white folks out of their neighborhoods with the thought that black folks were moving in. And so when this process was unveiling and unfolding, Vernon, they were buying the real estate at low, below market value because, again, of the scare tactics. Sell your property now. Black folks are coming. And they would orchestrate, you know, black women riding or walking through these neighborhoods with carriages with kids to show that they were actually, you know, moving in. And so what they did, they acquired these properties at below rate, and because of the system was in place that didn't do lending, and this was all in, in a lot of the government programs, there was language that prohibited lending to black families. Those people who were engaged in the process were buying and selling above market to black families moving in. Not only were they selling at above market rate, but they were also doing the lease to own financing which means they, they control the interest rate and financing of those loans. And so what has come out of that discussion, Vern, is that there was probably about four to big, four, three to $4 billion of wealth during these years extracted out of the black community in Chicago. 
That is absolutely so interesting. So you get these disparities all around wealth. So you, you don't create the wealth. And this is what I've tried to tell people and in organizations, businesses, churches, that the balance sheet is more important than the income sheet. We mainly look at what money comes in and goes out, this mm -hmm. income statement. But the balance sheet looks at what assets you have and what you owe. So it looks at what you own and what you owe. And that turns out to be more important when you start talking about uh, health and education and unemployment and home ownership. All in business ownership is how much wealth do you have. We're going to take our first break, and then I want to come back and really talk more about your upcoming symposium. And tell us again, when is that? Uh, October the 22nd through 23rd. It will be held in Baltimore, and I'll, I guess I'll give the website information. Yeah. www. We'll be, we'll be right back. Okay, we'll get that when we okay. come back. Thank you. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. Ron Hans with us this morning. He is the developer, the starter, the creator of the Network for Developing Conscious Communities. In the first segment, we just talked about conscious communities being conscious and developing a community, particularly with the disparities that we've seen in black communities, brown communities, in health uh, education, unemployment, home ownership, and basically just wealth creation. So we talked about why we have not, as a people, black and brown people, been able to create wealth at the same level that our white brothers and sisters have had the opportunity to do. So, Ron, I do want to, I want you to, we stopped by talking about you having the symposium in Baltimore. Tell us again when is that? Where is it? And how they can go to your webpage? Okay, thank you, Vernie. Uh, this the symposium the on racial equitable community development is being held on October the twenty second through the twenty third at the Braun Conference Center, located at seventy three ten Park Heights Avenue in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, you can go to our website and 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 get information on this on the symposium, uh, the session, the speakers. Uh, times that the uh, the symposium will be happening. Uh, our website is www.ndccnetwork.org. www. N as in Nancy, D as in David, C as in Charlie, C as in Charlie. Network.org. Okay. And also, we are off offering uh, scholarships as well. And there's a link to scholarships as well on the website for those who aren't able to afford the symposium fee, registration fee, there are scholarships being provided. So what is the uh, registration fee? The registration fee is one, 187 uh, for the two-day. That includes breakfast, lunch. Uh, we're hosting a networking reception on the first day on Tuesday. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. So this is Tuesday and Wednesday, October 22nd, 23rd. Yes. Uh, at the B-A-U-N-N Conference Center in Baltimore, 7310 yes. Park Heights Avenue in Baltimore, Maryland. Yes. Okay. $186? How did you come up with that number? <laughs> it off. So what else does me that? I don't know how. I, I, I think what we, 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 one of the things that we try to do, Vernon, is make this affordable and accessible for the everyday community stakeholder to come in and engage in these national far-reaching conversations that we try to convene. Um, and so the 187 um, is the two-day uh, with the meals and all provided. And there's a, and if there's a $75 just one day. Um, if you just plan on coming one day, $75. And, of course, there's a $45 registration for students. But, again, most importantly, we're offering scholarships that, that will offset the registration um, fee for individuals. All they need to do is go and complete the uh, registration form for the scholarships. And some of our sponsors, and we have several wonderful sponsors of this event, are offering givebacks of uh, registration scholarships as well. Okay, so you're trying to get this information about of, of our communities and why there's disparities in our communities, and you want to develop these communities. 
So you have these conversations, and I, I've been in these conversations with you, but what is the purpose of the conversation? What's the kind of outcome that you're looking for? Well, the, the outcome, Vernon, is really to, to, to build capacity. That's and strengthen. We have an ecosystem around community development that's operating in the African-American as well as other communities of color. In some sense, it's, it's fragmented. And what we're attempting to do is, is to, to engage a collective consciousness around how do we strengthen that community ecosystem? How do we get more community-based developers online that can actually go in and do development? And how do we increase the scale of the number of units that even the local nonprofits in those communities are doing? Now, I, I go into so many communities where local nonprofits are doing three and four units. But yet they're... When you say units, what are you talking about? Three or four housing units. They're rehabbing three or four housing units, but yet they're in a community that has several hundred housing units. And so if you talk about trying to really shift the, 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 the paradigm around community development, you have to look at how are we going to try to increase the scale of the work that we're doing. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day and... You know, one of the realities is that we don't even have health and wellness centers in our community where, where we know that trauma is a big issue, in a, in, 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 in particularly in the black community. But we don't have health and wellness centers operating in our community where people can come in and, and learn some techniques around how to control their, their anger, their frustrations through meditation, maybe through yoga, um, how to, you know, even to eat right, you know, how... how you know, their diet may affect their their mental state of behavior. So there is so many disconnects because of the fact of wealth, the wealth not being either shared with our community or promoted within our community that can allow us to, to create these 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 uh, 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 community development sectors that we need to strengthen in our communities. So we don't have the units, the housing units being developed, and we don't have these health centers. So I, I want to go back to this inequity in the cities. We were talking about the amount of wealth. So what's the difference in wealth between whites and blacks? Or well, Latinos? well, let's take Baltimore uh, for, as an example. In Baltimore, the average white household makes two times the income of the average black household. Blacks are making... Wait a minute, wait a minute. So a white household makes two times the income mm -hmm. so that if a, a, a black family is making $15 an hour, then you can expect that the white family is making $30. That's right, $30. And and so in Baltimore, the average black family household is, is averaging about $33,000. The average white household is averaging over $62,000. So that's almost a 100% increase in terms of income coming to the household. And so it... Wait, wait a minute. I just got to understand these numbers a minute to make sure because $33,000 is right about 15 bucks an hour. Well, $15 an hour is actually $24, $24,000. When you average out $15,000, it's like 24 well, it's, there's 2,000 hours in a year, 2,080 specifically if you're at a 40-hour week. So if you multiply 2,080 times 15, you're right at about 31, okay. $33,000 okay. okay. a year. And, 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 and when you think about $15 an hour, hour, one has to ask themselves, could I survive off of $15 an hour? And even when the, the local legislators are, are increasing this, this wage to $15 an hour, Vernon, they're phasing it in over a period of time. So it doesn't like go into effect the year they make the legislation. It's, it's incrementally moving over, over a three-year period to get to $15 an hour. So one of the critical things here you have at the black household, that's the mama, the daddy, the children, and everybody was coming into the household is $33,000 mm -hmm. in Baltimore. That's right. Which is approximately $15,000, maybe $15.50 an hour. Uh, that's what's coming in the household. And that's at a gross level. That's not at a... 
Annette level, and Annette is one third of that. So you're going to get about twenty one thousand dollars coming in, twenty two thousand dollars coming into the household. That's a little less than two thousand dollars a month coming mm-hmm. into the household. And so you get how can you live off for two thousand dollars a month, particularly if it's a family of four? Well, we, well, you know, I, I I teach. I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and one of the exercises I do with my students is to have them go and Google what is the medium starting salary for a student with a, a, a BA degree. A and usually, degree. Yeah, it's about forty to forty two thousand dollars. That's the gross. So we start taking out the net, which is the first thing, taxes at twenty eight percent. By the time we take out all the expenses that are coming out of that income, you know what? They are now impoverished themselves. So they, real, they realize the, under, the, the underlying question around wealth and wealth building. So once you take out your, your taxes, your housing, your transportation costs, and if you're a student, you may be paying student loans, your food costs, your clothing costs, your entertainment costs, you're upside down. And so when you talk about building wealth, it's hard to build wealth when you're under, underground. Underground and upside down, what I hear you say you've got more expenses Debt. than you've got That's more income. Expense, in income. Okay. And so you have more month than you, you got. Right. right. So what Robin Smith did for those students at Morehouse University, when he wrote off their student loan debt, he freed those students, man. He freed those young, those young students to go out and do work without having the burden of dealing with student loans, chasing around into the adult years. You remember president Barmer didn't pay off his student loans till he became president. And, and got the royalties from his first book, The Audacity of Hope. Then he was able to pay off his student loan. But up until that point, he was a lawyer with student debt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so if you have a black household with $33,800, likelihood is they're underwater. They have more, in, more debt, more expenses than income. Where if you look at white family, they're at 62, almost twice that. They can have... What it's called um, disposable, disposable income, right? So, so think of this: when you talk about wealth, the opportunities where you don't have wealth, which you can disconnect it from, healthcare, adequate healthcare, adequate food, no expenses for for even taking your family out every summer for a vacation. You're limited in so many ways because of the wealth, the lack of wealth. In your family. So we're going, to, we're going to stop here and take our second break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about these disparities. Thank you. Um, in, in our neighborhoods and the kinds of things we can do about them. We'll be right back. Thank you. Cooperative. National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. Uh, they've been with us now for six years. Ron, we've been on the air for six whole years. Wow, congratulations, Ronnie. When doing, we started, doing fantastic work. Thank you, babe. When we started out, it was going, we were only going to do it for a month. We were going to trial for a month, and it just kept going. Well, God always got a bigger plan for us than we have for ourselves. Amen. <laughs> and let's get back to this conversation about this these inequities that you're talking about that happens in our neighborhoods. So we talked about blacks household income in Baltimore is thirty three thousand eight hundred, where whites is sixty two seven. So blacks end up with that small amount of income, one half that of whites. They have more month than money, or they have more expenses than they have income, and therefore they don't get some of the things that they need, like fresh fruits and vegetables or uh, health care. And Weist with 62751 uh, they end up with what we call disposable income, um, organic. They can also have the health insurance. They can also have life insurance. They can also take vacations, which are kind of things that helps with the emotional side of things. So uh, they have more money than month, so they can get savings going on and create that wealth. So we, we talked about this the first half. So some of what, is, what are some of the other inequities in our neighborhoods? Well, in Baltimore, let's take Baltimore particularly. 
Well, we can we can look at the life expectancy, Vernon. Okay. Yeah, the life expectancy. We can look at in a neighborhood such as Upton and Drew Heights in, in Baltimore. The life expectancy is 63 years. But you can go to Roland Park. This, so this is the, in the black neighborhood. It's you can expect to live 63. 63 years. years. That's what that's what the, that's what the the actuaries are saying. Okay. And so you can move 10 miles, 14 miles. Excuse me, 14 miles north in a predominant white neighborhood of Roland Park and lived to see 83 years. So that's a 20-year difference in terms of, of life expectancy that one's experiencing. That's 20 years of, of lack of wealth generation that's being taken away from a family. So you're talking about the wealth generation. I'm really adding and sort of sitting here stunned that if I have this Income of $62,000 a year to white income, this white household. So I have disposable income and I can ha eat the, the right vegetables, get the meds, go to the doctors. I can pay for doctors. I can take vacations and get rest. Uh, I, I can do all of these kinds of things. And what that shows up in is you life expectancy. You live longer. So I live longer. You live longer. You're not dealing with the stresses of everyday pressures that and the trauma that our, our black communities are under. I mean, we talk about unemployment. I mean, you know, talk about the unemployment in Baltimore, which is in a black community is four times higher than a white community. So blacks in Baltimore is the unemployment rate is 14%. Yeah. Around 14%. And, and I, I do, I do want to say, I want to just, uh, um, um, to, to put some cloak around these statistics. These are statistics that have happened after the 2015 uprising in Baltimore that involved Freddie Gray. So what I'm t saying here through these statistics, the, the paradigm in Baltimore did not change after that uprising. It did not change for, for black Baltimore. The same disparities that existed before 2015 existed after 2015. Well, these things are in the fabric of the, of the neighborhood, so an uprising won't cause well, them to change well, anyway. Well, well, Vernon, and I guess... That's the reason for your organization. Well, Fernand, we can't talk about these disparities in, 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 in the true context unless we bring in the conversation about institutional racism. There's no way we can have this conversation to talk about these disparities if we can't talk about institutionalization of practices have, have made these divisions, have made these disparities, have increased them over time. So with that in the context, it's not unfathomable to see why we are in the state of being where we're in. Institutional racism has, has played a, 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 and is still playing a major part in the allocation of resources, policies in this country uh, affecting uh, communities of color. So you have these conversations to try to get us to live longer, have better quality of life as we're living so we can live longer. No, I, I had these conversations for us to recognize that we are up against a major obstacle called institutional racism. But we shouldn't let that to be the prohibitor that disallows us from doing the things necessary for us to do to, to augment and grow our communities and provide resources. I really think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that these inequalities and disparities exist, and we have to understand that that's racism that's systemic that's institutional that that's happening and then what we must do what we must do to overcome that to overcome so that. we don't have the disparity that's right okay that's right. and that's why you have your organization that's why we have the organization and that's why we promote the the practices and education forms that that we do so that's what a conscious community when that's you what say a conscious community is conscious is recognizing, recognizing that because there's a there's a humanistic as i said earlier there's a humanistic and a spiritual aspect to how we really need to approach our communities and how we want to see us grow. We've, we've, we've gone through a phase of disconnection, being disconnected as a people, culturally and spiritually. And we have to, to find our way back to what keeps us binded and grounded and connected, you know, together. Uh, because there's no savior coming for black America. And I think that most of us who, who have been in this work of, uh, of community building understand that there's no one's going to save black America but black America. And so we need, 
We need the the the, the uh, um, involvement of our faith-based community in a much larger larger way. We need the, the involvement of our business and professional associations in a much larger way. We got to go back into communities, man, where there are uh, no institutions working. You know, such as we talk about food deserts, communities that have no access to food sustainability. There are communities that are operating with no organizations working in those communities at all. And so we got to start looking at how we build institutions in our communities, such as what Marcus Garvey was promoting back in the 1930s. Well, before you go there, I want to go back to you mentioned he brought up food deserts. So I want to make sure people understand what a food desert is. And that's basically my understanding of a food desert is you cannot get fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. You cannot get quality foods. And these uh, dollar stores, they're coming in and and the the uh, chairman of the dollar stores, General Dollar, one of them said he wants to be in all of these neighborhoods. They're providing the carbs, low cost, and people can come in and get the carbs all day long, and they do not, and that's what helps to cause this low life expectancy. I got it. What do we do about it, man? Well, Vernon, um, we got to look at um, how we can build institutions that are growing and providing adequate foods to our communities. We got to talk more about home own- about ownership, not just real estate ownership. I mean, ownership of the businesses in our community, because if you go through any black community, I don't care if it's Baltimore or L.A., you will see the business ownership in those communities don't look like the people who reside in those communities. And so we have to get to an understanding that if we're going to create better outcomes for ourselves, that we have to be the orchestrators of our own self-determination, which means ownership, that we have to be able to bring the resources and, and, and the services that's going to better serve our communities uh, in a better way than others who, who are now doing that. Well, this is why I have you on the program called Everything Co-op. <laughs> okay. Because this is cooperatives are the only vehicle that I have seen in my 72 years on this planet. It's the only organizations, institutions, whether it's housing or financial through credit unions or uh, farming, what, whatever, but only instant, only organization where you can create wealth, social and financial wealth. Well, let's say um, I like to look at it as one of those processes. One of what? As a process. Okay. Because living cooperatively is not new to the black community. You know, I remember. I think that's how we survived. Yeah, I, I remember I mean, the kids. You know, we used to borrow slavery. flour and butter and sugar for our neighbors. Nobody would live in a community where I grew up as a kid would allow the other family down the street to starve. And so, when that family might have ran out of some livable, uh, edible goods during the month, they would send, you know, their kid up to our house, or we would send out. We would go to other neighbors and borrow things. That's the, in the fabric, the DNA of, of black community. Sharing, bartering. We do that. We do that well. We've done that. And so we have to, you know, go and institutionalize some other, some more ways to make it more sustainable. And that's where I think the cooperative model comes in because it creates a more institutionalized, sustainable process so that we can have it there as an ongoing entity to be able to provide goods and services to our communities in well, a collective you, way. You're talking about, can I borrow a cup of sugar? Well, that happened in West Virginia. And where'd you mm-hmm, grow up? Where'd mm-hmm. you grow up? Where'd you grow up? Did I grew you, up in Baltimore. In Baltimore. Okay. So that we, we helped each other. And my, my uh, uncle in New York talked to us about rent parties. Right. Mm-hmm. So when a neighbor could not pay the rent, okay, they would come together and they would play cards and they would bring the foods and people would pay for the food. And whatever was made was given to the family that needed to 
divided rent. Yeah. So we supported and helped each other. There is yeah. the borough societies where people pitch in their nickels and pennies so that whenever somebody died, they could bury them. That happened. That was going on in slavery. Oh, yeah. Oh, that yeah. happened all the time. This this sort of this thing came over from Africa, this sort of, uh, I think, West Africa particularly, of, of us collectively sharing monies. Uh, Ubuntu uh, was something that in Southern Africa, uh, it was a way of being, of sort of supporting each other. Uh, uh, so you, you get all of this stuff coming out of out of motherland, of sharing, of supporting each other. My my world view says we could not have survived slavery, slavery or Jim Crow, or any other period if we did not work together and come together. Mm. Well, it's, it's a if it, it's um, that ironic that the seven principles of cooperative align with the seven principles of Kwanzaa. And so when you, when you look at those seven principles of Kwanzaa, they really talk about all of this uh, collective uh, uh, work that's needed around um, and the faith work. And so those principles drive why we should be and how we can, most importantly, how we can begin to really build a new framework and paradigms in our communities. Well, it's, it's interesting you talk about the seven principles of co-ops and the seven um, principles of Kwanzaa is that I think the fifth one of Kwanzaa is cooperation. Ujima. Uj- U- Ujama, right? Ujama. 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 Yeah. Uh, and there is a um, a cooperative in Pittsburgh called Ujama. I met the, I met the sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lakeisha Wolf. Right, I met her. Uh, she's been on the show. She and Frankie, they're two people. Matter of fact, I went up and visited them. I threatened to do that. And mm-hmm. I got to tell you guys, if you want some good jewelry, I, I, I hope nobody, the females in my family are listening because I bought my Christmas gifts <laughs> up there this summer. Uh, they're great. And I told them my, my only concern was their prices were too low, okay, mm-hmm. uh, with the quality of their goods. But it's sisters. Uh, are up there making jewelry and clothing and artwork, and then they buy from other sisters around the world, mm-hmm. people of color around the yeah. world, and they sell them in a storefront. This is what you can do: come together, mm-hmm. come together, and create a business. Uh, so. Since you did mention Pittsburgh, I do want to put a plug in. Um, you know, Pittsburgh this year has um, the mayor has created a position uh, for an equity officer inside the mayor's office that's going to oversee equity around the city agencies in Pittsburgh. And the gentleman's name is Majestic Lane. He'll be uh, visiting us uh, at the symposium. He'll be serving on a panel to talk about where Pittsburgh is around its equity lens and framework uh, in Pittsburgh. And in the same conversation, we're having folks from Baltimore who also has legislation on the book to talk about where they are along their process of ensuring that resources are being fairly and equitably distributed throughout the city without having any sector of the city gain leverage by by attracting the majority of public resources to that to that particular area. So we've got we talked about first the disparity and we're gonna take a break now and come back and talk about what you're doing in in your symposium. We'll be right back. Okay. Don't touch that now. Thank you. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, we, we have Ron Hanson in the studio with us this morning. So, Ron, we, we talked about the disparities in the, in the white community, black community, white family, the black family. We've talked about the history of it. Uh, we talked about what we need to do, and I find co-ops is one of the answers. And different cities are doing different things. And you're having this symposium. Uh, you've told us it is... Uh, October the 22nd and 23rd is in Baltimore at the Bond, B-A-U-N-N Conference Center at 7310 Park Heights Avenue. Um, tell me, what are some of the things? You talked about Dr. Scott Statter, but what are some of the programs that you're going to be doing there? Well, you know, one of the, the conversations, and and the, we have 67, over 60 
presenters that that are coming and and sharing in dialogue at this at this symposium, and we have over sixteen discussions that will be running concurrently throughout the Tuesday and Wednesday. And what we are, are hoping and our goal is, Vernon, to really drive outcomes, um, to drive outcomes. And so it's important to come together and share information, and that's what we want to achieve, firstly, is the sharing of information. But m most importantly, we don't, don't want to leave an empty vessel of a conversation there on October the 22nd and 23rd. We want to give folks an opportunity to take back to their communities some some best practices that they can put in place in their local communities. Um, and so we'll help them do that. You know, we hope to sign up uh, organizations and become members of our network so that we can support their work in an ongoing, more cohesive way. Um, because, uh, again, it's more not about just talking about what the disparities are, but really how do we find solutions to to augmenting these disparities that are affecting the growth and development of our communities uh, on, a, on a holistic perspective. You know, our young folks are calling out to us to, to their need. You know, the violence that we see in our communities, um, the, the high dropout um, rates that we're seeing in public school systems, the public school systems are not working adequately to support the education of our communities, um, the loss of culture that we're seeing. Um, there are so many um, uh, challenges um, that we're addressing, and there still needs more addressing if we're going to be working towards solving and, and creating some better outcomes. Um, so this this symposium is is, a, is and along with the other discussions that we we frame out over the years uh, are really about doing that because we have to come together as a as a as a community and talk about what our challenges are and and put together put put aside our own ego our own personal objectives and look at how we're working at solving problem solving collectively. So we'll have discussions. Uh, around how we can work with other partners. There's one of the symposium sessions we're going to have is, is, is talking with other Asian and, and Latino communities about how can we, as, 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 as communities of color, lend more capacity to our work collectively. Mm -hmm. Because the same, some of the same problems we all are facing when it comes down to institutional racism. Yeah, um, I, I first came to this when I taught. I taught at City University in New York. And it was uh, blacks uh, against Puerto Ricans yeah. for the crumbs. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seemed like the folks in power, white folks, would try to keep us divided and keep us fighting against each other over crumbs, over a little bit of nothing. Yeah. And then I saw it when I taught at San Diego State in, in, in San Diego, the blacks against Mexicans. And it was the same kind of dialogue going back and forth. Where, and we have the same problems in our in our neighborhoods. Yes, in our neighborhoods. Okay. Same same issues. So if we can come together and work together, so that would be one I'd like to go to. Yeah. Is how do how do we how do we pool our resources, our talents? Well, uh, you know, um, we 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 all are living virtually in the same community. Economically, they're pushing us. The economics have pushed us in to living in in the same community. I mean, when I came to D.C. back in the, the 70s and I looked at Adams Morgan, it was a rich, culturally diverse community in Adams Morgan. Now you go to Adams Morgan, it almost looks like any other white gentrified neighborhood in terms of the culture that was existing then is absent now. Hmm. So we got an opportunity to, to, to really um, create communities that, that we see, communities that we desire. Um, it's not going to be an overnight, um, a one-night um, solution. It's going to be a process. Uh, but I say this here. When I've gone to Birmingham, Alabama, and I look at, and I've gone to New Orleans, I see the same thing happening in those cities. I've been to Indianapolis. I've been to New York. I know when I'm in a black neighborhood, uh, whether I'm blinded 
or, or sighted, I know when I'm in a black neighborhood when I open my eyes. And economically, even, even in Birmingham and New Orleans, where in Birmingham we have the historical black civil rights district where blacks aren't controlling the outcomes economically in that city. And it's the same thing in New Orleans, a black city where it has a $50 billion tourist industry and, and blacks are getting 3 to 4%, black businesses getting 3 to 4% of that business. There has to be a change to that. There has to be a change. And how do we how do we get that change? I mean, that's that's what we're really talking about. Well, um, yeah, and I and I I really do see co-ops as an answer, if if it's not the answer. I do don't want to give a plug out. Your conference is on the twenty second and twenty third of October. October is Co-op Month. October is the we started our radio program six years ago in October because of October being Co-op Month, and my birthday is October the seventh. So October is a great month for me. <laughs> my uh, sister's birthday is October the fourth. <laughs> NCBA National Corporate Business Association give a plug out to them because they're having their 2019 Impact Conference. Uh, starts on Tuesday, October the 1st. It's sort of a pre-conference looking at um, uh, Exodus and Co-op Leadership and Management uh, presented by St. Mary's College. It's all day long from 9 to 4.30. And then on Wednesday and Thursday is their main conference, and they will be talking about some of the things you're talking about here. Okay. Well, well Vernie, you, 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 you are uh, hitting a panel at our symposium, and we're looking at cooperatives, and we're going to discuss cooperatives in, in, in terms of their viability around ownership in, in, in communities of color. And so uh, we're, going to be, we're in the quest of launching a green cooperative initiative in Baltimore as well. Several weeks ago, um, you, everybody nationally, internationally heard the president talk about how filthy Baltimore was uh, as a city and and and. and, and, and uh, and we took that personally, but we took that personally well before his comments. We start working with Wells Fargo Bank back in January of this year to look at launching a cooperative business initiative in Baltimore around street maintenance. And so we're now at the point now we're on the thrust of launching this cooperative business in Baltimore to look at how we can start looking at some of the uh, main street small business districts around doing a, a clean green cleaning project. And that will be worker-owned, worker-controlled, and worker-directed. And so we hope to be launching that in the next several months in Baltimore City uh, with the assistance from Wells Fargo Bank. So we can have – there's four basic types of co-ops. If, if it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative, and you can pretty much have any kind of business you want. If it's owned and controlled by the consumer, the people that uses the products or services, uh, then it's – Call a consumer cooperative, and those are housing co-ops or consumer co-ops. It's only controlled by the people that live in it. Uh, credit unions are consumer cooperatives. Uh, REI is uh, 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 equipment, um, recreational equipment. It's a company that is owned by the people that buy those services. So you can have those two types are the main types, and then you have a purchasing co-op and a marketing co-op. Purchasing co-ops uh, where people pool together to buy things to get a better product at a lower price, and the marketing co-ops or producer co-ops is what they're called. Ocean Spray, Lando Lakes, those are all uh, Cabot Creamery. They're all uh, forms of Farming is coming together. Now, artists, like we talked about Ujama, they're coming together to share. They make stuff together, but they can't. Each individual artist could not have a storefront. Mm-hmm. So in Ujama, they, they pool their uh, products together, and then they sell them, and they create a storefront. Uh, and then they share the profits. They they control when they're open, when they close, what shows and all. So it's a great, great model to do exactly what you're talking about in Baltimore, in New Orleans, in California, every state, every city. It's a place that we could do this and take it nationally. Yeah. Well, Vernon, I, I would be remiss if I didn't take a, a moment just to just say uh, thank you um, for having the vision to create this forum called Everything Co-op. Uh, you bring a conversation um, to the table that needs to be um, had. Um, the forums that you um, create through this radio talk show allows folks to see 
a vision of the possibilities. And I think that's what NDCC is about, sharing the possibilities with folks in terms of how things can be different if we can apply ourselves collectively to working at it. So, uh, Vernon, thank you for this show. Thank you for uh, having the vision. Um, thank you for your thank to your sponsor for supporting um, this show on a regular basis because it's it's, it's much much needed. So, you, you know, you're welcome, and I appreciate. It. I took this idea to Chuck, uh, Pat, and I. Pat Thornton and I did. She's the producer of the show. We took this to him six and a half years ago. And they took it because NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, <laughs> okay, yeah. by providing innovative financial and related services. Yeah. So in their mission, it's all about these communities that we're talking about yeah. uh, that have not had it. So they have been looking at ways of doing what we're talking about. That's why they make a great, great sponsor mm. uh, for the show. And I, you're welcome. And I just want to get more conversations with the ultimate goal, it's the same as yours, so we can have businesses created that's owned and controlled by people of color. Uh, they tell me the worker co-ops that the 40 to 60 percent of the newer ones are owned by people of color yeah. uh, so that, that we can create the wealth that you're talking about so people can live happier, longer lives. That's right. That's what, that's what, that's what, that's what the creator had in mind for all of us to prosper. Thank you very much. And for everybody out there, please have a wonderful week and we'll see you next next week. <laughs>